Genesis chapter 8. I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Genesis, but last time we were together in Genesis, we studied about the flood in chapter 6 and 7 and most of chapter 8. Now at this point in Genesis, the floodwaters have subsided and Noah has left the ark with his family. Uh, they were there in the ark for 377 days but finally, they come onto dry land. And that's where we pick up our story in chapter 8, verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Okay, the first thing that Noah did once on dry land was to offer, we see, sacrifices to the Lord. God had told Noah to bring seven pairs of each clean animal and each clean bird onto the ark. Now, at least in part, we see the reason why. Why God gave that commission to Noah. The clean animals to, were to be part of a part of sacrifice uh, and worship to God. In ancient Israel, when they first read this, would have seen the roots of their own sacrificial system uh, with Noah's altar and the burnt offerings and the offering of the clean animals unto God. Now for us as Christians, of course, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament era and that Noah even engaged in has been fulfilled. All of those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed forward to the great sacrifice of Jesus. His blood became the last blood, the final blood, and no other is needed. The shadow of animal sacrifices is no longer because the true sacrifice of Jesus has become visible. But it is fascinating to see Noah's first move upon exiting the ark. After all of God's wrath and all of God's judgment being poured out upon the earth, Noah worshiped God. You see, the Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And at this point, Noah's reverence for God, his fear of God, his respect for God must have been off the charts. So with respect for God, reverence for God, Noah worshiped the Lord with these sacrifices. Now this was instructive for Israel and it's also instructive for us. You see, we learn that God's people are a worshiping people, centering their lives around him. And we learn that part of worship is to give God some of the best of what is already his. You see, these clean animals, they already belonged to God. And their lives, of course, were precious because animal life was exceedingly rare at that point in the history of the earth. But even though it was rare and precious, it still was given to God. Their lives were given to God. This is true worship. You see, God deserves our best. Even if we wonder if our depleted resources can handle the hit of sacrificing or giving to God, Noah shows us that we should not worry. Instead, we ought to worship no matter the cost. Now in verse 21, 21 the story goes on to say, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Okay, so we learn here that the aroma of Noah's sacrifice, it was pleasing to God. Okay, this gives us a glimpse into the fact that he loves our worship. He loves our sacrifice. We could recall the pleasure of Jesus when he saw the widow that gave her two mites or two small coins into the temple treasury. Jesus said there in Luke 21, verse 3 and 4, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them or those who had come before her, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus loved that form of worship, and here we see God appreciated that form of worship from Noah as well. He'd done something similar, and God loved it. It pleased the Lord. Then God said in his heart in verse 21 that he would never again curse the ground because of man, nor, verse 21, would he strike down every living creature in the same way that he had just done. In other words, he said, while the earth remains, uh, he committed himself to the perpetuation of the seasons. So he said things like seed time and harvest and cold and heat and winter and summer and day and night would all serve as a testimony to his faithfulness. Now, of course, we know that after Adam sinned, the ground was cursed uh, after his fall. But God had cursed the ground in a different and more severe way at the time of the flood. The idea is that through the flood, God had treated the ground with disdain as if it had no value. And he says here, I will not treat the ground in that way again. God's point was not to say that natural disasters would no longer occur, but that the normal balance of nature would not be completely disrupted uh, th through natural disasters. In other words, God would be faithful as he brought the seasons upon the earth. This promise from God reminds me of the famous hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, where it says, Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars and their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness mercy, and love. You see, when the sun comes up tomorrow, it's to be emblematic of the faithfulness of God. Okay, the idea of this whole movement, though, is simple. God was willing to cleanse the earth of the wicked in order to start over with a new worshiping community. In other words, he wanted a people for himself. And you see, God craves the same thing today. He is looking for a group of people who will be his, a worshiping community here on earth. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, but you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we are a new community with Jesus. We are his people. And it seems that one day God will again cleanse the earth and start over 
with a perfected worshiping community, just like he did in the days of Noah, forever a people pure and worshiping uh, over and celebrating him. Now let's move on to chapter 9, the first verse. It says, And God, verse 1, blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, before moving on past that first verse, let's note here that God renewed his commission to Noah. Remember, God had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1 verse 28. Now he tells Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is where there is a little bit of a shift though. You see, God had told Adam and Eve to subdue and have dominion over the animal kingdom. But let's see what God said to Noah. Verse 2, he said, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Okay, Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule over the animal kingdom. And and Adam did this. He named the animals there in the Garden of Eden. But Noah and his descendants would be feared and dreaded, it says, by the animal kingdom. Now, our passage today that we just read here does not say that the responsibility to rule and domesticate was taken away, but now a new component is introduced. Fear and dread would be the normal animal response to human life. Okay, but the passage doesn't stop with the dread of the animal kingdom. God also tells Noah that every moving thing that lives shall be food for the human race. He'd at least given humanity the green plants to eat before the flood, but now God gave him everything to eat after the flood. The only prohibition that God gave to this was that they could not eat the flesh with its blood, with its life, in other words. In ancient times, the blood was considered the life force of living beings. So the idea here is that animal life must be drained of its blood before being consumed by human life. Okay, in a ritualistic way, it was symbolic of returning life back to God. Some even see it as the modern equivalent of praying, a prayer of thanksgiving before we eat our modern meals, a way to say thank you to God for the life that we are receiving as we eat our food. Okay, so God began, after the flood, allowing animal life to be used to sustain human life. Okay, now I should say that that some scholars think that this was God's way of permitting Noah to begin eating the meat of wild animals that travel in herds after the flood. In other words, the word for moving things that's found here is not usually used of predatory animals like lions or domesticated animals like cows or cattle. But it's used as a catch-all category for any move, uh, uh, for for uh, animals that travel in packs together. Not just every creeping thing, 
but animals like uh, antelope or deer or gazelle or rabbits. And if this is the case, then what God is now allowing is for humanity to continue in the pre-flood practice of eating meat uh, that they'd raised, but now also eating meat that they would hunt. Okay, but, but the straightforward reading of the passage is not that God is merely allowing them to eat meat that they had hunted at this point, but that humanity did not eat meat of any kind before the flood, and now they're allowed to after the days of Noah. Okay, the implication, if that's the correct reading, is that before the flood, humanity was basically vegetarian. Okay, now some might take that idea and run off declaring that vegetarianism is closer to God's ideal, closer to what you would have found uh, in the Garden of Eden. But, but we have to remember that it's God who prescribed this to Noah. He said, every moving thing that lives, verse 3, shall be food for you. You see, God's interest is never presented as a way to make concession for the way we are. No, he's presented as sustaining human life. And he thought at this point that meat would help humans live. And don't forget that many of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament law required that the worshiper actually eat the meat of the sacrifice. In, in other words, in order to be an Israelite who worshiped God, it meant that you would partake of many of the meat sacrifices that you gave to God. In other words, for sacrifices, he didn't just tolerate the eating of meat, but actually mandated the eating of meat for ancient Israel. But the idea of those sacrifices and the permission God gave Noah is simple. Death begets life. Even in vegetarianism, a living organism must die to sustain human life. In God's mind, lesser life forms like animals or plants could be used to sustain the higher life of humanity. Okay, this is why it's so shocking when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. You see, in Noah receiving the, the uh, permission to receive or eat meat, it was lower life sustaining higher life. But when Jesus dies on the cross, it is higher life. Jesus making a way for lower life, us, to be able to live. He's divine. He's life of the highest order. But he died so that we might live. Okay, before moving on from this, let me give you a side note. I don't think that this passage demands that human beings eat meat if they want to be faithful to God. I think we can eat meat. It's allowed that we eat meat. But I think there's room to refrain from it if we'd like. I just don't think that there's room for us biblically to refrain from meat eating for religious or even moral reasons. Remember, some modern forms of vegetarianism or veganism have their roots in things like Hinduism and Buddhism. Even some modern Seventh-day Adventists follow a vegetarian or vegan diet, but they base that on their interpretations of Old Testament prophecies that talk about a coming day when the lion will lie down with the lamb and humanity will be at peace with uh, the animal kingdom. But Christians who decide not to eat meat shouldn't do so for religious reasons. Now, take this for what you will. This is just a pastor talking right now. 
But I urge you to use discernment when you come across literature or documentaries or health experts who promote a vegan or vegetarian diet. Read, listen to, or watch rebuttals of their arguments and positions. And please use extra caution whenever this is presented as a moral issue. Humans are made in the image of God. Animals are not made in the image of God. There's a fundamental difference between us. Often the best course will be to take a middle and moderate path between the extremes. Okay, that said, if you personally, as a Christian, make a decision not to eat meat, or if you decide to eat meat, as a believer, you should not be disruptive about it. It's a behavior firmly fixed in the personal conviction category. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 14, verse 1 through 3. He said, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrels over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And I think that's a good and final word on this particular subject today. Let's move on to verse 5 in Genesis chapter 9. It says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds, verse 6, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Okay, speaking of the blood of animals, God then went out of his way to say that the blood of man is of great value. He says, verse 6, anyone who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, the guilty murderer would be punished with the shedding of his own blood. It's, it's, it's one thing to take the life of an animal in order to sustain your own life, God says, but it's another thing entirely to take the life of a human being. Why? Well, he says in verse 6, God made man in his own image. You see, it was important for God to reiterate this at this point, lest we interpret the flood as God's disregard for human life. No, he values human life. It's the highest of all of his creation. To take human life for God in the flood was a sober and grievous process. And he wants humanity, he says here, to value human life as well. This is one reason that Christians reject the idea that some forms of human life are more valuable than other forms of human life. The aged person growing sicker by the day is made in the image of God. They're not to be despised. They have value. So does the infant inside of her mother's womb. Not just because of who they might become, but because God places value upon them. Made in God's image, every human being, no matter their life stage, no matter their potential for utility, is valuable. Here, though, God does not merely speak of his esteem for human life. He says, though, that those who murder others must be judged by the community. He says, by man, verse 6, shall his blood be shed. Now, the subject of capital punishment is a volatile issue in our society. Okay, some believers see it as necessitated 
by scriptures like this one or Paul's statements concerning government in Romans 13. In Romans 13, 4, he says things like this, the governing authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, others, though, see the practice of capital punishment as archaic and ineffective. Though they should be careful in holding that view, lest they accuse God of a lack of wisdom. But there are some Christians who take the Bible seriously, but believe the New Testament overrides capital punishment, making way for grace and forgiveness and love. So what are we to do with this question? Is capital punishment biblical today? Okay, first, we must recognize that nothing God commands can ever be called barbaric. We have to make that confession. Secondly, if God commands it, it must be a deterrent of some kind. Third, the law goes all the way back, not to Moses and Israel's law, but Noah and humanity's law. Fourth, love and forgiveness do not remove other forms of discipline, so why should they remove capital punishment? In short, I think it's hard to argue against capital punishment from the scriptures. Okay, that said, societies are fallible and often make major mistakes when it comes to capital punishment. Mistaken convictions, the mishandling of celebrity cases, the systematic imprisonment of black men, violence, prison gangs, institutionalization, inhumane conditions, recidivism rates, drug abuse inside prisons, and overcrowded prisons are just some of the obstacles that our own judicial system faces. And I think for many Christians, we just simply cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're in, as a society, way over our heads. And as much as human government is a way to cope with the decay and insanity left by the fall, it is always so far from the ideal. It can never govern us perfectly. When Jesus comes, though, we will see justice and righteousness roll down like waters, Amos 5.24. So for now, we're just simply to do the best that we can. Okay, after all that, God recapped his commission for Noah and Noah's family in verse 7. Let's read it. He says, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. After that, God began making a promise to Noah. So let's read of that in verse 8 and following. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, this is sometimes referred to as the Noahic covenant, as in Noah, uh, the Noahic covenant. Okay, the word covenant is often thought of as similar to a contract, but we shouldn't think of Noah 
uh, as entering into a contract with God. There, he didn't bring much uh, responsibility to this. There wasn't much weight on his shoulders with this covenant. Like many of God's agreements with humanity, God would bear most of the responsibility of this covenant. Okay, the basic promise was that God would never again, he says in verse 11, destroy the earth by a flood. The promise is cosmic or universal, which is why God refers to Noah's offspring or every living creature and every beast of the earth in verse 9 and 10. Never again, he says, would all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Okay, it's slightly ominous in that it does leave room for God's judgment to come in other forms, but it's just that he will not bring a worldwide judgment via flood. Okay, for his part, Peter alludes to this when he details how people deliberately overlook the fact of the flood. In 2 Peter 2, verse 5 and 7, he said, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But God's guarantee here is that he will never again judge the whole world by means of a flood. Now let's go on to see the rest of the covenant in verse 12 and following. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, what would the sign of this covenant that God made with humanity be? He says, I'm going to set my bow in the cloud. And every time that bow is seen in the clouds, uh, God would remember his covenant. Okay, as I stated in a previous study, some think that the flood marked the first time that rain had come upon the earth. And if that's the case, it's possible that rainbows had never before appeared on the planet. Okay, but at the very least, rainbows had never been used before this moment as a sign of God's covenant of peace with humanity. Okay, but why was the rainbow the sign that God would use to say, I will no longer judge the earth with a worldwide flood? Okay, the, the idea is actually fairly, fairly simple. God is pictured like a warrior, and he has his weapons. And one of his weapons is a war bow. And he takes that war bow and he hangs it up in the sky in a ceremony or as an emblem of peace. God's battle bow, in other words, is hung in the clouds. It's meant to signify that he's leaning into his long-suffering nature. The battle of Noah's flood is over. God is ready to work with humanity once again. Okay, now as I mentioned earlier, this does not mean that God is forever done judging humanity. 
the prophets spoke time and time again of a coming day when the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. The quote from Zechariah 14, verse 3. And we think of Jesus as the one who will fight ultimately against all his enemies, winning victory for his kingdom. It says in Revelation 19, verse 15, that from Jesus' mouth will come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. But that future war is all with a specific goal in mind. The permanent setting aside of God's war bow. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will bring in everlasting righteousness. And of his rule, Isaiah 9 verse 7 tells us, there will be no end. Okay, so that's what the rainbow in the sky was meant to represent. Okay, all that said, I'm sure many of you are thinking about the irony of it all. Today's society or modern use of the rainbow is hardly what it meant for the Noahic covenant. And all I really care to say about this tonight is that I'm not surprised. If the rainbow was meant to be a symbol of God withholding his wrath, of course, a lost humanity under the influence of the devil himself would seek to repoint that image into a different direction. So it's no surprise that the rainbow has been used for other reasons or other purposes. Okay, let's move on in chapter 9, verse 18. It says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three sons were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Okay, so here we have the three sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were their names. We, we've seen them already. They survived the flood with Noah, uh, but we know little about them. Uh, more light is shed on their character in the passage that follows, but here we learn that from these people, these sons, the whole earth was populated or dispersed. Okay, this is a preparatory statement. In a few moments, we're going to read of the table of the nations uh, that was around in Moses' day. And each nation has roots in or is tied to either Shem or Ham or Japheth. Okay, remember though, that the initial readers of Genesis were the Israelites who came out of Egypt. God delivered them from their captivity to take them to the long-awaited promised land. And who was currently living in the promised land that they were going to? Well, none other than the Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan mentioned here in verse 18, the son of Ham. Uh, they were the ones, the Canaanites, that God told uh, the people of Israel, to drive out from the land. And why did the Canaanites need to be driven out of the land? Well, partly because the land had been promised to Abraham's seed, but also as a judgment from God. The Canaanite people were exceedingly wicked and had been given many years and generations to repent and amend their ways. But since they hadn't, God's judgment was going to come upon them in the form of the people of Israel led by Joshua. Okay, but in our passage, we're going to observe the roots of Canaanite wickedness. Okay, this is why Ham and his son Canaan are specifically mentioned in verse 18. 
Okay, so let's read of what happens next. It says, Noah, verse 20, began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. All right, a little bit of a surprising de development after reading all of these godly things about Noah. Okay, it's, it's improbable that wine was unknown before this episode. Uh, it, it's likely because Noah knew about vineyards and wine that he cultivated uh, wine at some point after the flood. And this was a turn for Noah, of course, because it's here that he began to be a, a man of the soil. It, it seems that one of his crops was, was grapes. I imagine that Noah took time before the flood while he was constructing the ark to learn about agriculture and horticulture. I mean, imagine it. He knew that he would survive this coming wrath that God had revealed to him. So I don't think that this is the invention of wine. I think this is Noah taking the information that he'd learned before the flood and applying it after the flood. And he drank of the wine, it says in verse 21, and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Even in modern times, we know this is a negative development. This is not good. This is not something Noah should be doing. But as I've said before, nakedness for ancient Israelites was a really big deal. And so here we see Noah drunk and naked in his tent. This was abhorrent to the Israelite readers of this passage. Okay, now the, the Bible says that just as bread strengthens a man, and oil makes his face shine. Wine gladdens the heart of man. Psalm 104, verse 15. The Proverbs say that, that wine is a gift to those in bitter distress. Proverbs 31, verse 6. It, it seems to be one of God's gracious gifts to humanity. Something to enjoy in an often unenjoyable world. It's even connected to the ministry of Jesus, of course. His first miracle was to produce exceedingly good wine at a wedding feast in Cana, and he implemented wine into the communion table that he gave to the church. And he drank sour wine after crying out, I thirst, while on the cross. But as humans do, Noah went beyond using wine as a gift and instead used it to sin. He became drunk, it says in verse 21. And, and if the Bible describes wine in positive terms, it much more intensely gives us warnings about its negative effects. All throughout Scripture, intoxication is held out as a gateway to massive folly, a major way to disrupt the goodness of God in your life. In the narratives of the Bible, characters who get drunk do stupid things. In the wisdom literature of the Bible, drunkenness leads to other sins. And in the New Testament letters, impairment is something disciples leave behind. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 4, verse 3. You've spent enough time in the past doing what the heathen like to do. Your lives were spent in indecency, lust, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and the disgusting worship of idols. Hey, by the way, the Bible's prohibitions of intoxication through drink can be applied to other substances as well. For instance, we would not expect to find 
uh, the Bible ever mention the word marijuana. But the Bible doesn't have to mention something directly to say something about it. Basically, the concept goes like this. If subject A has a forbidden characteristic and subject B shares that characteristic, then B is also forbidden. To state this plainly, since the Bible re rebukes alcoholic intoxication, then we rightly can conclude that it, it forbids all forms of intoxication. Okay, but there are better reasons than that for us to remain sober. Better reasons than just God says don't do it. For serious believers, a better reason to avoid mind-altering substances is that our bodies and our minds belong to God. The part of, me, part of me that belongs to God is my mind. I want my mind to be clean, my mind to be sober. If, I, if I'm going to help people, if I'm going to make a difference in this world, if I'm going to serve Jesus, and if I'm going to serve like Jesus, then I have to have a sharp and lucid mind. I must be able to think and reason and communicate. I need lucidity, and I have to press into trials and difficulties. And intoxication doesn't help me in that process. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, 18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the desire to put one's self in an altered mental state is not the Christian way. Like Jesus before us, we embrace everything that God has for us. He would not allow Jesus, his senses, to be dulled when he was on the cross. He rejected the drink that would have taken the edge off. No, instead, he embraced the edge as he died on the cross. Okay, so life is difficult, but our response is not to become dulled or less alive. No, in prayer, we press into God and we become more alive than ever, even in the midst of trial and difficulty. Now, verse 22 goes on to say, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, the major question of this bizarre episode is this. What was Ham's sin? In a moment, Noah is going to rebuke him. What was Ham's sin? Okay, as you might imagine, there have been many wild guesses proposed over the years. Ancient rabbis said that Ham went in and castrated Noah, which is why he had no more sons. Others claimed that he slept with his own mother or sexually abused his own father. But it says, I think, what it means. It says, Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Okay, this is how Shem and Japheth understood the crime. That's why they walked backward and covered the nakedness of Noah. They didn't want to see the nakedness like Ham had. So the sin apparently was seeing, not something that he did, but something that he saw. Then perhaps taking what he saw and broadcasting it, broadcasting his father's nakedness. Okay, but, but does that really make it any clearer for us? What does that mean? Okay, modern readers might look at that and say, oh, I, I understand. I have unpleasant memories of 
being a little boy or a little girl and watching my dad walk around the house in his tidy whities There's nothing more unpleasant than that. It's not good to see your unclothed father. But that's not the way the ancient Israelites understood this scene. There's likely much more at play. Whatever his sin was, it's likely the original Israelite readers knew what it was, and we, as modern readers, thousands of years later, are left in the dark. But the question is, is there a way for us to figure this out? Well, we can go to other passages in Scripture. And in Leviticus 18 and 20, there are prohibitions against nakedness. And the nakedness of a father can include also his wife. So it's possible that what, what Ham saw was his mother and his father lying naked and passed out after a drunken sexual encounter. And somehow he reveled or rejoiced in what he saw and then went and shared it with his brothers. Okay, the, the, the text, though, really doesn't tell us what he saw or what he did, so I'm not going to speculate any further. But one thing I will add is that the sensitivity the, the, that the Bible places on this subject of the exposure of nakedness. Okay, in our contemporary world, pornography has systematically corrupted the societal respect for human nakedness. It has truly been, I think, a Pandora's box that has introduced thousands of evils. And right now, even secular researchers are growing concerned about the disastrous effects of pornography upon our society. The best-selling pornographic material contains forms of physical aggression, and most of the victims are women. The average age of exposure in our modern society for boys is nine years old. By adult age, if viewing is continued, Many of them are unable to experience sexual response with a real, live woman. Sex has become totally depersonalized for them. You see, porn is addictive. It destroys relationships. And it leads to sex trafficking and prostitution. Yet many in our modern age think that pornography is a good thing. That it's worse to refrain from recycling or to eat fast food than it is to engage in pornography. But nothing could be further from the truth. Paul said in Galatians 5 verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, and lustful pleasures. The word for sexual immorality there is the word porneia in the Greek language. The root word for pornography. It's treating another human being as a thing, an object for pleasure. Ancient Rome and ancient Greece, they were steeped in pornea, using male and female servants and children from lower classes as sex slaves, as outlets for their sexual desires. And our modern world is steeped in pornea also, in many of the same forms that Rome and Greece engaged in, but also in this new digital frontier. And it's harmful and damaging, something that every Christian should make every effort to avoid. The stakes are way too high. Brothers and sisters, take this part of your life very seriously. Okay, Noah, though, it says in verse 24, awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. 
And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, here we see Noah awakening from his drunken stupor. And he knew exactly what Ham had done to him. Somehow he was able to recall it. And in, it, in response, Noah made a declaration regarding Ham's offspring. He pronounced a curse on Canaan, uh, who was Ham's son. Then he blessed Shem by making Canaan his servant in the future. And then he gave a more moderate blessing to Japheth. He would, bless, he would be blessed less than Shem, and he would dwell in his tents, but above Canaan, uh, who would be Japheth's servant. Okay, this prediction from Noah that the Canaanites would live in servitude to the Shemites and Japhethites is meant to be seen in moral terms. The Canaanite peoples, descendants of Ham, would follow Ham's degrading ways. They're not cursed because of what Ham did, but because they continued in Ham's pattern. And by the time Israel came to the promised land that God gave to Egypt, the Canaanite sin was ripe for God's judgment. All that time, they'd not removed from themselves Ham's ways, but instead persisted in grotesque forms of sin. They had become entrenched in their sin. Depravity for the Canaanites had run its full course, just like we'd seen in the earth's population before the time of the flood. The Canaanites had become, over the centuries, a cancer to the human race. And so much of the Torah will be written against the backdrop of this curse that, that Noah pronounced upon Canaan. Land will be promised to Abraham's descendants, but the Canaanites will take the land first. Then they will pollute the land with abhorrent practices, many of which were directly condemned in the law that Israel received when they came out of Egypt. The Bible presents their sexual perversion as, a grave, uh, as grave as bestiality, worship as twisted as child sacrifice, and rampant idolatry which brought them into the demonic realm. Israel then, as descendants of Shem, will go into the land, drive out, and judge the Canaanite people. Okay, in verse 28, it goes on to say, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. That's the end of the flood account. That's the end of Genesis chapter 9. Now, before we move on into chapter 10, we should note a little bit of a comparison between Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 6 through 9. The original creation and the new creation after the flood. They both began with a non-functional chaotic cosmos that is turned into something functional by God's intervention. In the original creation, it happened through six days of creation. And in Noah's day, it happened through the receding of the waters. Both were then blessed with God telling the inhabitants to be fruitful and to multiply. Adam and Eve were naked and unaware uh, in a sinless sense. 
And Noah was naked and unaware in a sinful sense. And after sin, a curse was then pronounced in both passages. Uh, one upon the earth in Genesis 3, one upon Canaan here in Genesis chapter 9. Okay, all of this to say that it seems that we're to envision all the events that we just saw through the flood in this study and in our last study as kind of God's reboot of creation. Okay, let's move on to chapter 10 tonight. It says, these are the generations, verse 1, of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Okay, what, what's going to follow this verse in Genesis chapter 10 has often been referred to as the table of the nations. Okay, in this table, 70 descendants from Noah's sons are going to be listed. 14 will come from Japheth, 30 will come from Ham, and 26 will come from Shem. And they'll all be arranged in a specific pattern. Okay, it's not really a way to trace ancestry, like a family tree, but it's a way to show the political, geographical, and ethnic affiliations among the tribes at the time of Israel. It depicts the world that ancient Israel uh, knew and lived in, showing 70 nations that came from Noah. It's a panoramic view, if you will, of the nations that they knew and interacted with as a backdrop for the rest of the book of Genesis and beyond Genesis into Exodus. Okay, eventually, though, Moses will narrow his scope to the seed of Abraham in chapter 12. But first, he wants to spend a little bit of time detailing all of these uh, nations. So this is seen in the way that chapter 10 ends. It will say, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Okay, so my plan right now is to read through the passage while making light comments, just a few comments, on some of the nations that are mentioned. Okay, that, ex that uh, said, we must acknowledge that this list meant more to Israel than it does to us today. They, they lived amongst these people. They knew where these people were at, and they, they were right there in the midst, in the promised land of all of these 70 nations or tribes or people groups that were uh, about them. We're just kind of studying them from afar, but they meant a lot to the ancient people of Israel. So all that to say, as we're reading through this list, if you feel badly because you're not getting a lot out of it, don't worry. It's just a list. The people of Israel understood it much more than we do today. So let's start out in verse 2 with the sons of Japheth. Gomer, uh, these are Sumerians and Scythians. Magog, uh, which is the land of Gog between Armenia and Cappadocia, Madai, Javon, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. Verse 3, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, verse 4, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Okay, so here in those first five verses, we have the descendants of Japheth. Uh, there are 14 tribes or nations that are mentioned. And they were the northern people, and they were far from the people of Israel. Uh, they were considered the coastland people, it says, spread from their lands, meaning uh, that they were on Israel's horizon or on Israel's coast, far from Israel. Okay, later in the Bible, the Scythians, the people of Gog, the Medes, the armies of Tubal and Meshach, 
citizens of Cyprus, Cyprus and Tarshish and even Greece will appear in the biblical narrative. Okay? And all of them are going to come from these nations. Let's move on, though, to the descendants of Ham in verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Okay, here we have the descendants of Ham recorded next. They comprise the portion of the world that Israel more directly interacted with. Okay, these were their neighbors to the east and their neighbors to the south. The people of Cush are especially detailed here, and they would have settled in modern-day uh, Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. Okay, Cush, it says in verse 8, fathered Nimrod. Okay, quite a name. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. I'm sure you go around saying that all the time. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That was a saying in those days. The beginning, verse 10, of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kela, and Resin between Nineveh and Kela, that is, the great city. Okay, in, this, in the middle of this record about the sons of Ham, we have this interesting figure, this man called Nimrod. A little parenthesis about Nimrod. Okay, he's presented in this passage as a mighty man and a mighty hunter. Okay, the description is that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. But that's widely regarded as a negative statement. It's not a good thing that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's, it's usually seen as a, either a sarcastic a way to describe him or as, as a way to say that he was opposed to God, that he was against the Lord, before the Lord in that kind of way, putting himself before God. Uh, but some do regard it as a neutral statement, meaning something along the lines of, and God saw Nimrod. But it's never regarded as a good statement. It's, it's hard to say a lot about this Nimrod character without getting into speculation. But what does seem clear is that he became famous uh, and he became a revered leader. And at some point, uh, he began in these Genesis 10 accounts, at some point in history, he began building, became a warrior, became a hunter, and his fame spread far and wide, which is why people talked about him. <clears throat> now, it is also clear that he became the founder of the earliest imperial world powers of uh, Babylon, connected to Babel, and Assyria with their capital city in Nineveh. And the prophet Micah would eventually speak of Assyria as the land of Nimrod, Micah 5 verse 6. So he and his cities figure in as an opposite to God's chosen people and the city that they would establish. So Nimrod runs counter to God's plans, as we'll see in the following chapter. Okay, let's move on in the passage, though, into verse 13. It says, Egypt fathered Ladim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Okay, the record here describes tribes of nations uh, from North Africa all the way to Crete. And after that, we get uh, the sons of uh, Ham, uh, or uh, Canaan, Ham's son, uh, 
And so let's read of that in verse 15 and following. It says, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Geza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, the Canaanites were of special interest to Israel. Uh, Noah cursed them, remember? And they were inhabiting the promised land. Uh, they, and they hadn't turned from Ham's ways, but it instead become severely entrenched in abominable rituals and practices and sin. So the list here mentions many of the nations that plagued ancient Israel. Uh, the Jebusites were in the promised land uh, until David banished them from Jebus, which became Jerusalem. The people of Sidon lived up the coast from Israel. Uh, but these Canaanite tribes, they settled in the promised land and uh, all the way from the bottom all the way up into Lebanon. And they became foes of ancient Israel. These are Israel's enemies. Uh, they lived in the territory that God wanted to give to his people. Okay, so, so this, at this point, we've detailed uh, Japheth and Ham's descendants. Now Moses turns to Noah's final son, Shem, from whom the people of Israel would come. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, verse 21, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, verse 23, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mosh. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, verse 25. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazarmepheth, Jerah, Hadarim, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country in the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Okay, fascinating reading, I know. But let's talk about this for a second. You have here the descendants of Shem, and there's one particular figure that stands out. His name is Eber in verse 21 and in verse 25. Okay, he was not an actual, uh, the actual son of Shem. Shem had five sons uh, listed in verse 22. And after mentioning uh, the sons of Aram, the focus turns exclusively to Arpachshad. And he had a son named Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Again, Eber is the focus of this particular record. Now, Eber then, it says, went on to have two sons. The first was named Peleg, and we don't know much about him. Uh, his descendants aren't really mentioned. What is said is that in his days, the earth was divided. And this is likely a reference to the events of chapter 11 that we're going to see where the earth was divided or scattered uh, through the confusion of language. The second son of Eber was named Joktan. It is, uh, and it's his line that the author follows. 
listing off 13 sons of Joktan. And their territory is mentioned as extending from Mesha and the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. And this is a reference to the Arabian Peninsula. Okay, all this is detailed because Abraham and eventually Israel's ancestry and bloodline would have connection to these 13 Joktanite tribes. Okay, so that's why we're getting this detail about these tribes in particular. Okay, chapter 11 of Genesis is fairly short, so let's cover it in our study tonight. It says in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, here, humanity is presented as having intense unity. It says, verse 1, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And with this united vocabulary, they migrated together from the east and found a plain in Shinar to settle in, in verse 2. Okay, this is an area that is often associated in the Old Testament with Babylon, a place which positioned itself against God and against God's kingdom. Okay, then they kick-started a massive kiln-fired brick-making campaign, you'll notice there in verse 3. Now, the supplies for building these bricks were plentiful in that region. They had, uh, with their bricks and mortar, they then said to each other, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so God had told humanity to fill the earth in Genesis 1 and again in Genesis chapter 9. Adam and Noah both received that commission from God. But notice, this group did not want to disperse. Instead, they wanted to gather, lest they be dispersed. Instead, they felt like it would be better for them to make a name for themselves, verse 4, a reputation for themselves, in other words, by building a city and its tower. Okay, we should not think of this as an innocent construction project on man's part. Instead, it seems that we should view uh, this as open rebellion against God, uh, an attempt at independence, living without God. You see, at that time, people didn't live in cities. Instead, cities were places where all the official buildings were gathered. Administration or granaries and a temple were usually found inside the city. In fact, most of the buildings in the city centered around that temple or religious site, making the city basically a temple complex, a religious center for people to gather to. That's the way we should understand the tower that these people wanted to build with its top into the heavens. It, this would have been an expensive building. Now, we know this because they used the most advanced and costly technology they had at their disposal to build it. To them, this was an important tower. More than likely, this is the first iteration of the ancient ziggurat, a religious tower meant to indicate that man could climb 
to the gods. These towers were shaped a lot like pyramids, but without an inner chamber on the inside like the pyramids. Instead, their main feature was a long stairway going to the very top where a small room at the very top was prepared for various deities to come and abide in, for the gods to come and meet with man. This seemed to be their way of seeing a connection between heaven and earth, a link, if you will, a gateway, if you will, a portal, if you will, from the unseen to the heavenly dimension, from the visible to the or invisible to the earthly. They hoped that the divine would stop by, come down the stairs, and interact with them. Their gifts, their tower, their little room for the gods, their stairway, they were all meant to get the favor of the deities that they believed in. Let's see how God responds to this tower and this city. It says in verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Okay, here Moses uses anthropomorphism to describe in human terms what God did at that moment. He says God came down, he saw the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And God was displeased with their accomplishment. Okay, because of sin within humanity, God saw it as a negative thing that they would be one people and one language. You see, nothing, he said, that that generation of people proposed would be impossible for them. You see, God thought of this as a negative, in negative terms. If sinful humanity, he thought, can speak one language, they can operate in unison. But unity towards an evil cause is not helpful to society. So God wanted to combat that unity. What does this say about our modern times? You know, more and more, we are becoming one people with one language, without any barriers for communication. So here, God intervened and confused their language. Okay, this was an act of God's mercy. Without it, the depravity of the pre-flood world might have repeated itself in the post-flood world. Once people could not understand one another, they dispersed from there over the face of all the earth. Okay, the implication that he's making is that they found others who spoke like them and went off with them into new lands. As a result, they ditched the city. They left off building the city, verse 8. Therefore, verse 9, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, this city, Babel, which would develop later into Babylon, becomes the great anti-city of Scripture. Babel or Babylon will always be emblematic of man-made religion 
Views which believe that man can attain to the divine. Babel and every religion that has followed its model is anti-cross, anti-gospel, and anti-Jesus. The gospel says that we cannot attain to the divine by our works, but that God had to come to save us. God would and did come through Jesus. The Babel religions of the world, however, teach that man can build its system to attain to the divine. Not by grace, but by some form of works. And I think that this is an ongoing battle throughout all of Scripture. Babel versus God. The the anti-city versus God's kingdom. And it's a battle which will culminate in Jesus' destruction of Babylon in Revelation 18, verse 2 and 3. There it says, in destroying Babylon, it says, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." You see, when Jesus comes, civilization which postures itself against God and religion, uh, which religions which try to attain God by works, they'll be destroyed. God's city will come and God's people will be established. Okay, this table of the nations that we've just read about was a way for Moses to point towards Israel as a theocracy, uh, a theocracy of God. Though humanity tried to create a society and religion, Israel would be a new society with God's religion. They would speak the unified language of Scripture. They would center themselves around the tabernacle. God would interact with them through blood sacrifice. And if they obeyed God, their kingdom and God's kingdom would spread throughout the world and righteousness would You see, God's kingdom is the exact opposite of the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, let's wrap up tonight by reading verse 10 to 26 of chapter 11. It says, These are the generations of Shem when Shem was 100 years old. He fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem... Verse 11, lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had no other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, verse 18, he fathered Reu, and Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug, and Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. 
And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is a standard genealogical tree, and it brings us all the way down from Shem to the key figure of the next major portion of the book of Genesis, this figure, Abram, who we will know as Abraham. God bless you, church. I'm so thankful for all of you. And I know this is a stressful time for so many of us. I'm praying for you, grieving with you, sorrowing with you as you adjust to life as is during this coronavirus pandemic and also as you uh, experience the trials and the difficulties that go along with it. My prayer is that this sickness will be eradicated from our community, from our state, from our nation, and from our world, and that God would provide for every single one of his people. I'm praying that there would be zero people who die of the coronavirus at Calvary Monterey. Let's pray as we close. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, even though there are parts of it that are tedious, we thank you for its trustworthiness. And we thank you, Lord, for the lessons therein. Build us up in it, we pray. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.